0: Today's episode is sponsored by Action Heat, makers of the world's best battery-heated clothing. It's heat on demand with the touch of a button so you can control your own personal environment. If you've ever sat in a car with heated car seats, then you've got the basic idea of how they work, and Action Heat has great new styles and models just released for this winter that incorporate heated panels into men's and women's clothing, including jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and base-layer shirts and long johns. As a special deal for our listeners, you can save 20% off your entire order by going to actionheat.com slash best to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com slash best or use the coupon code BEST at checkout to save 20%. Stay toasty warm while you enjoy all your outdoor activities this winter with Action Heat. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left Podcast, in which we shall learn about the two major recent climate change reports that were released and some of the new energy arriving in Congress determined to be equal to the task. Clips today come from America Adapts, The Bradcast, Science Friday, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Green News Report, The Brian Lehrer Show, Sustainable Human, and The Real News.
1: I want you to maybe give a little bit of background on that, and I think people in our, you know, orbits, and I'm not even in your orbit, I'm a different, but with a broader orbit is, we know what it is, but you know, most people, I think, in the United States really have no clue what it is, and it's interesting that you you took on this really big role in writing uh, one of the just and of course explain the specifics of the reports that you've been involved in, but you were a director on the adaptation side, and. First off, I'm curious, how did you get involved with that? Who recruited you? What was that? I mean, you, you know you must have been stepping into something really difficult.
2: Well, I I didn't really know what I was stepping into. I, I, I was really excited to work on climate change, and I knew I loved synthesis, uh science that's pushing together all the different lines of understanding to figure out what do we know and what don't we know. And I mean, I think your question of, well, what is the IPCC is a really important one. And the most basic way to think about the IPCC is that it's a grand partnership between the governments of the world and the scientists of the world. And the governments essentially say, You scientists, if you follow our rules for developing a comprehensive report, we'll take your evaluation to be a definitive characterization of what we know right now and what we don't. And those rules really push for comprehensiveness. This is not just scientists saying, here's my work. These reports cite, for example, up to 15,000 publications in each volume. They go through these multiple rounds of review. They have this very signature line-by-line government approval of the final summaries. And they aim to lay out the options without saying what government should do, recognizing that that should often goes beyond objective science and really needs to recognize the diversity of goals people have.
1: Okay, and literally, so it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, but who hosts this? I mean, I think a lot of Americans think it's, you know, they, they get these conspiracy notions of like, it has this control over the U.S. or something. And, and I'm really just that, that's that sort of spectrum. But I, I, I don't think people appreciate really what a noble endeavor the IPCC really is. And so it, it, it's like housed in Switzerland or something. Where, where is it literally sort of coordinated from?
2: I would almost start from the bottom up. In some ways, the IPCC is the best deal the planet's ever gotten. Most of the experts who work for the IPCC don't sit together. They're distributed around the globe, every continent, and they're top professors in universities, top practitioners in research institutes, and they participate in these reports for free. They're volunteering their time to take part in this massive undertaking. So the staff of the IPCC is actually really, really tiny for a report that would have 800 authors. We're talking dozens of people who work on the different working groups to make it happen. The Secretariat of the IPCC is based in Geneva, and they're the people who organize the government meetings where you have the approvals of the summary documents and help identify locations where the author team meetings will happen to develop each report. Then those of us who worked in the staff for the co chair so the scientific staff, there were just a very small number of us who were incredibly lucky to be the, the few people who are actually employed as science professionals in the process to work, in my case, with 300 authors for the main report and 120 authors for the report focused on extremes. And we were the ones who were able to help tie the pieces together, kind of the, the skeleton staff helping make it happen.
1: Well, so you were at the center of that. You were one of, I guess, two co-directors of that process, right? Of the, your particular track.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So you just mentioned like all these different authors and then there's 120 authors. And so I'm assuming you got to know some of these people quite well, but that still must have been a a real challenge. You, you every, you know, have different scientists, different styles. I mean, that was that, did it get crazy or was everything pretty, I don't know, (laughs) uniform and it, it, it worked. So some
2: of the authors who've been doing these reports for decades, it varies. There are a lot of authors who are doing a report for the very first time, and there are few who have done it for their whole career. And the ones who have done these reports again and again, almost without question, the reason why they come back, they say it's for the camaraderie, the degree mm. to which you build understanding and ideas together. They're really impressive bonds that happen when you realize that you're drawing from such different contexts across the globe, but you're thinking about the same issues from different angles. And that knowledge creation that happens when people come together is incredibly exciting.
3: Margaret Sullivan, the uh, media columnist over at Washington Post, she used to be the public editor at the New York Times. Yeah. She's great. She said, after a week of dire news, the United Nations report on climate change was, for some people, a bridge too far. She said a normally well-informed friend told her, quote, I heard something about it, but I'm on a week-long hiatus from the news. The report, however, she notes, which was announced late on Sunday, uh, officially released on Monday... Uh, Could hardly have been more frightening. By 2040, only 22 years from now, the world will be in deep trouble, according to the experts at the U.N. Food shortages, wildfires, mass death of coral reefs are just some of the dangers, though that seems bad enough. She notes that the media must cover this story like it is the only story that matters. Desi Doyen, for years, you have been covering this story like it's the only one that matters. And while I know we're going to be covering this on our Green News Report tomorrow as well, uh, what have you been able to gather so far from this new Disturbing? Is that a nice way to put it?
4: Oh, uh, that's the nicest way to put uh, it. A
3: report from the uh, international It's the
4: it's the intergovernmental panel on climate change IPCC. IPCC. That's an international consortium of scientists, right. hundreds of climate scientists that work voluntarily for free. They're organized by the United Nations. Um, the uh, authors of this report presented their findings on Monday uh, South Korea time and uh, basically they say, quote, the world stands on the brink of failure. When it comes to holding global warming to moderate levels and nations will need to take unprecedented actions to cut their carbon emissions over the next decade. So what they mean is that we have about only 12 years left to really get action underway, to get on the pathway to total decarbonization by 2050. That would be net zero carbon emissions from all processes in society by 2050. And we have to get on that path, seriously Mm -hmm. on that path, within the next 12 years, by 2030.
3: Or we're screwed.
4: Or we get into... We're probably
3: screwed anyway. But what? you said, well, I know, I know. You would uh, think that we can do something about it. And I agree with you, we can. But, you know, what a lot of people have been uh, saying for so many years, oh, wow." Well, uh- Uh, you know, no, we don't need to worry about this. This is not going to happen until the end of the century. Uh, Never mind our children and grandchildren. I won't be around, so I don't need to worry. That's not true. This is not the end of the century. This is now.
4: Yeah, this is happening now. So this is the first uh, report to detail the difference between if we reach the 2 degrees Celsius target target above pre-industrial levels of global warming that all nations have agreed to try to limit in the Paris Climate Agreement. So it's the difference between the 2 Degrees Celsius target versus 1.5 degrees Celsius target. And they say that that half of a degree makes all the difference. The effects that we were once expecting to arrive mm-hmm. maybe several decades in the future are now going to arrive by 2040 possibly sooner. And that's why we need to really, really buckle down and try to get this 1.5 degree target uh, on the books and on that path toward it.
3: One of their uh, key findings or the key consequences if we overshoot this 1.5 degree target uh, by just a half a degree, the proportion of the global population exposed to water stress, that is difficulty obtaining fresh water, could be 50% lower at 1.5 degrees then it will be at 2 degrees so this half a percent uh, half of uh, half of a degree could mean um, d-
4: millions more
3: oh, it's struggling to find water. So
4: so at 1.5 degrees, let's look at the Middle East. Middle East, very volatile area, already dealing with water shortages. So with 1.5 degrees increase in global warming, if we can keep it to that, then water shortages will be 10% more likely. But if we go over 2 degrees Celsius, they'll be 20% more likely. It will double the Doubles. impacts of water yep. shortages in a place that already doesn't have enough water. Um, it's the same thing with uh, the same sort of uh, uh, projections for crop failures Mm -hmm. and also, more importantly, for sea level rise. Because no matter what we do, you know, even if we stopped today, uh, because of glacial ice melt and the, the melting of the polar ice caps, sea level rise is going to happen. We cannot avoid that now. But it's the difference between 20, 30 million people in coastal areas being affected versus hundreds of millions of people being affected, causing mass migration away from the coast.
3: Just for that half a degree.
4: Just for that half of a degree.
3: Uh, Yeah. So
4: basically, so let's, you know, the upshot of this is that avoiding that half a degree of warming makes a huge difference. They do say that the good news, there is some good news that we still can limit that warming. We have not yet overshot the target. We are likely to overshoot the 1.5 degree target between 2030 and 2050. So if we get on track now, the sooner we get on track, the more we can mitigate these catastrophic damages. And I
3: see nothing to uh, keep us from getting <laughs> on track. Things are going very well all in all regards. Uh, well,
4: no matter when you start, yeah. you can always take the exit off the freeway. No matter what that exit is, we have to take it. We will take it. It's just a matter of how much suffering there's going to be in the meantime.
3: Yeah. And uh, of course, that in my thinking brings us back to November 8. And then Margaret Sullivan uh, completes her uh, column at Washington Post by saying in short when it comes to climate change we the media the public the world need radical transformation and we need it now she says.
5: So, Dr. Levin, the, the, the goal is to prevent a two-degree increase in average global temperatures, but this report tells us that even a 1.5-degree increase is going to bring some pretty big changes.
6: Yep, that's absolutely right. So the um, Paris Agreement actually has these two goals, as you said, to limit warming well below two degrees and pursue efforts for 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And that was because for some of the most vulnerable countries, you can think about small island developing states, um, 1.5 degrees Celsius is also going to harm well-being to a tremendous extent. So what this report did was look at what are the differences between warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius of warming, and how much harder is it to get to 1.5 degrees Celsius as opposed to 2 degrees Celsius. And they found that, indeed, we are definitely not on track, um, and the half a degree of warming actually can make a tremendous difference.
5: And For example...
6: So, for example, um, what they found is they looked across a number of different systems and they found, uh, for example, for extreme heat, the percentage of the global population exposed to a severe heat wave, which we've already started to experience with one degree of warming, um, at least once every five years is two and a half times worse with two degrees of warming instead of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. If you think about um, sea ice free Arctic in the summer, um, when you don't have any ice um, on top of the Arctic. Uh, this could happen at least once every 100 years with 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, but at least once every decade under 2 degrees Celsius of warming. And that can impact climate change even further because you have a dark surface that opens up underneath the ice and it absorbs more warmth. Sea level rise is 0.06 meters more with 2 degrees as opposed to 1.5 degrees. And while that doesn't sound like a lot, that translates to millions more people being impacted. Uh, species losses is um, two times worse for both plants and vertebrates that lose at least half of their range under two degrees of warming as opposed to 1.5 degrees of warming, three times worse for insects. Um uh, f- almost 40 percent worse uh, under two degrees versus 1.5 degrees for the amount of permafrost that would thaw in the arc in the Arctic uh, so these are some really big numbers one of the most um devastating and surprising ones to me was for coral reefs, where the report found that under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, we would see 70 to 90 percent of a further decline in coral reefs, with two degrees more than 99 percent, which is just tremendous.
5: Does it look like there's any way we're going to be able to stay under that 2.0 degrees?
6: So what the report finds is that both um, 2 degrees Celsius of warming and 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming is technically feasible. Um, there have been a lot of modeling studies where analysts come together and see what would have to happen um, to make that transition happen. Um, Right now, uh, emissions are roughly fifty two gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent. They are projected to increase even with the climate change commitments that we've made under the Paris agreement by two thousand thirty. Instead, we essentially need to have that amount and go down to twenty five to thirty gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. By 2030. And then we actually need to phase out net emissions altogether by mid-century. So this is a tremendous transformation and decarbonization rates that are truly unprecedented at the scale of what we are talking about. Um, it also would require behavioral and technological shifts across the board. So, for example, by 2050, we're talking about renewables projected to supply 70 to 85% of electricity uh, to be able to meet 1.5 pathways. We're talking about reducing energy demand, increasing the efficiency of food production, changing dietary mm-hmm. choices um a, a lot of different measures uh which we're um just starting to do in certain right. locations, but not at the yeah. scale we need
5: uh so you know the president said he wanted to know quote who drew the report. I won't go there with that can you Can you answer at least who commissioned it what data they used
6: sure so um the, the way that the IPCC works um, is, um, in this particular case, under the Paris Agreement, there was an accompanying decision, and that decision... Um, requested the IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to put this report together um, and what the scientists do they commissioned about a hundred different scientists um, and had a very lengthy review process of several different drafts being um, reviewed publicly reviewed and I was one of the reviewers for that um, the scientists basically assess all of the recent literature and in this case on 1.5 degrees Celsius and see what the science says um, up to a certain cutoff point where the literature is published um, and then they put together a detailed technical Analysis. Interestingly, in this case, um, there's an accompanying summary for policymakers, which was agreed upon in Korea, um, about a week ago. And that all of the governments signed onto, including the United States. And that is actually something that, um, negotiators come, make sure that they feel comfortable with the, um, the implications for policymakers. So in this case, um, part of the answer is that the United States, um, did actually endorse this report.
7: CNN International tweeted on October 14th, quote, "...scared by that new report on climate change? Here's what you can do to help. Eat less meat? Swap your car or plane ride for a bus or train? Use a smart thermostat in your home and upgrade to more efficient appliances?" Close quote. To which FAIR analyst Adam Johnson replied, quote, "...reminder, that 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And presenting the crisis as a moral failing on the part of individuals without noting this fact is journalistic malpractice, close quote. Johnson was citing data from the Carbon Disclosure Project's Carbon Majors Report, which tracks greenhouse gas emissions and traces them to for-profit and state-owned entities. The report also found that since 1988, just 25 such enterprises were responsible for more than half of all greenhouse gas emissions. A check of the Nexus News database shows that CNN— like most corporate news outlets, has never mentioned the Carbon Majors Report, which includes many major media advertisers on its list. CNN will, however, keep you informed on your need to buy a more energy-efficient refrigerator.
0: I don't need to tell you that 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights, but have you ever wondered how human rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar to the caging of children on U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They are an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org best to make a donation and support this vital work around the world. When you do, not only is your gift tax-deductible, it will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. That means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of people who need it most. Again, that's hrw.org slash best, and thanks.
6: You have criticized the IPCC for constraining its policy advice to fit neatly within the current economic model. Mm. Can you explain? I mean, for some to have a landmark report like this is simply critical, because we live in a country in the United States where the president proudly denies climate change, you know, calls it a, cl- a Chinese hoax. Um, and so to have any kind of report like this—but you're a critic of the report in some respects—
8: well, certainly. Whilst I think it is a really good report in trying to understand the impacts between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade of warming, when it comes to what we have to do about it, I think, again, it, it runs scared of really being very honest. And given it is effectively a scientific report, I think our role as scientists and as academics is to tell it like it is, not to colour it or sweeten the pill to make it more attractive. So my comments here are that, and it's not just with this report, it's we repeatedly come out of the IPCC, so, whilst we're quite direct and honest about the impact side, when it comes to what we have to do about this, we run scared. We don't want to scare the politicians or the public. We don't want to um, uh, move away from this sort of the energy systems that we have today. So, we always try to broad- broadly sort of massage the status quo, so incremental changes, if you like. And what I'm saying is that actually, when you really look at the numbers behind the report, look at the numbers the science comes out with, then we're talking about a complete revolution in our energy system. And that is going to beg very fundamental questions about how we run our economies. And again, you can turn around and say, well, that seems just far, you know, far too um, far too removed from the current economic system we have. But we have to remember it's only been, well, it's 10 years now since the banking crisis. And many parts of the world are still suffering the repercussions of that banking crisis. So the current economic framework has struggled um, within its own remit, if you like. But I think this, this has been a real opportunity, which we are now losing, to reshape that economy so it's an economy that's suitable for society, not a society that's suitable for the economy. And I think the policymakers, sort of the academics, have just run scared of this, uh, of being honest about what our numbers tell us about the rates of change that we, will, that we require and how we have to move the productive capacity of our society from building second homes for professors or private jets or private yachts or large four-wheel drive cars, from moving from that to building public transport, electrification, improved homes for everyone. So it's a, it's a shift of that productive capacity, the resources and the labour from the, if you like, the luxury for the 20% to the essential low-carbon infrastructure for all of us.
4: Okay. According to the disturbing, comprehensive new federal national climate assessment, the breathtaking scale of the campfire is yet another sign that man-made climate change is already wreaking havoc on the U.S., and the record extreme weather disasters we've seen in recent years are a harbinger of worse to come. The Trump administration did try to bury the release of that report on the Friday after Thanksgiving. The assessment is a joint report on climate change by 13 U.S. federal agencies, required by law every 4 years. Now this newest assessment is dire and blunt and finds the devastating effects of climate change are quote intensifying across the country with adverse effects on the economy, public health and the environmental systems we rely on to survive. The report states that the evidence behind man-made climate change is, quote, overwhelming. It precisely details how these physical climate changes will translate into specific economic damages for each region and each economic sector in the U.S.
3: Good. They may not care about the climate, but... Maybe these Republicans give a damn about the economy?
4: Mm, We'll see. It finds that climate change will be expensive, far more expensive than reducing emissions by transitioning away from fossil fuels. The costs are staggering by 2100 bigger, more destructive wildfires in California, bigger, more destructive storms and floods in Texas and the Northeast, more coastal flooding at high tide in Florida, water shortages in the Southwest. Midwest corn yields, for example, will plunge 75 percent by 2100 because of intensifying heat waves, droughts and floods. Rising seas will force mass migration away from the coasts. And they note our aging infrastructure in the U.S. was not built for these extreme. Streams. Damages to the nation's roads, bridges, and water systems will cost more than $30 billion a year.
3: And $30 billion a year is actually a small number compared to some of these others in this remarkable report. It concludes that by the end of the century, climate change will cost a full 10% of the national GDP. That is more than twice the amount of money that was lost during the Great Recession 10 years ago.
4: Not only will climate change be expensive, but it will also harm Americans' health. Now, remember, 2016 was the hottest year on record so far, but by 2050, it will be an average year. By 2100, average temperatures in the U.S. will rise nearly 10 degrees Fahrenheit, bringing more frequent deadly heat waves and also increasing the spread of insect-borne diseases.
3: 10 degrees Fahrenheit, that's the Average increase across the country.
4: Exactly. But the report also finds that reducing these risks through mitigation and adaptation can greatly reduce these losses by half in most sectors, with the side benefit of also cutting the cost of health care impacts from pollution. Obviously, the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress are against taking any action and are actually actively making carbon emissions worse. On Monday, President Trump rejected both the science and the economic impacts of climate change in the report.
5: Yeah, I don't believe it. No, no, I don't believe it.
3: The report from his own administration.
4: Climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann of Penn State University on a recent broadcast compared the road to severe climate change to a highway, one that we can choose to exit at any time.
9: Yeah, well, every bit of progress makes a difference. There is still time to take the actions necessary to avert that sort of future. And how bad we're willing to let it get You know, the only decision we we have to make at this point is um, how quickly do we get off that highway.
3: Someone please pull this car over.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Arrett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color, or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about experience beautiful multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. bucks. 100s of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a best of love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the
10: promo code LEFT. The Trump administration, that is 13 federal agencies working in coordination, released the 4th National Climate Assessment, a detailed document featuring the conclusions of more than 300 scientists that the planet is getting warmer, human activity is contributing to that warming, and we are approaching a point of no return in terms of catastrophic damage. It's a stunning document. It's also one that President Donald Trump himself doesn't buy.
5: I've seen it. uh, I've read some of
9: it. And yeah, I don't believe it. it? No, no, I don't believe it.
10: So then on Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders doubled down, claiming that the climate report was based on hysterical forecasting and not tied to reality, even though it came from their own administration.
4: And you have to look at the fact that this report is based on the most extreme modeled scenario, which contradicts long-established trends.
10: Well, actually, I've read some of the report, and it's based on a number of different Scenarios, some more extreme, some less, and even the lesser, uh, less extreme scenarios um, seem to predict damage to the economy and much more. So, if we're to give the Trump administration any sort of sympathy for the way they blatantly deny, deny, deny science, it is true that this report is not something that anyone would want to believe. It says if climate change continues at its current pace, the United States will suffer major economic, uh, damage more dire than the Great Recession. There will be losses from crop failures to severe disruptions to trade to major stress on critical infrastructure, even infrastructure that the president doesn't want to build. The report also confirms that a wide range of disasters, from wildfires and hurricanes to famine and disease, are the product of human-made changes to the environment. So we're not going to let the administration get away with burying this on the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. We're going to come back to it here six days later and dive in in some detail with Christopher Joyce, correspondent on the Science Desk at NPR. Christopher, thanks for giving us some one-on-one time here at WNYC. Hi. Glad
11: glad to be here. Thanks, Ryan.
10: Um, So where do you start? Can you talk maybe a little bit about what I refer to, that there are different scenarios in this report. There are ranges of effects if the model turns out to be true or turns out to be, you know, best-case scenario, worst-case scenario, based on the carbon load that's already in the atmosphere.
11: Yeah, I think uh, we're going to have to get in the weeds a little bit. But, uh, you know, warming me off if we get too far um there are basically scientists tend to use four different scenarios and they um they have numbers associated with them they're called representative concentration pathways but no there won't be a quiz on that RCP 2.6 4.5 6.0 8.5 basically they range from 2.6 being well that's a, it reflects a world that really um gets the act together and gets off of fossil fuels toot de suite and gets into electric cars right away and and does what scientists admit is a very unlikely, a very aggressive uh, reduction of emissions. That's the rosy future out to 2100. Uh, 4.5 represents uh, something more along the lines of what was agreed to in Paris. Um, at the uh, uh, International Climate Meeting, which is fairly aggressive reduction to fossil fuels, a fairly quick movement to more renewables. Um, and then the 6.0 is some uh, a much less aggressive effort. And 8.5 is, uh, as you mentioned, an extreme case. It is the worst case scenario, and that's the term that people use. Sometimes they say business as usual. Um, and uh, what the authors of the report did was they used – 8.5 and 4.5, and on very in a few occasions 2.6. So they didn't use just the worst case scenario. But I mean, as is often the case with people who are uh, trying to deny the science of climate science, climate uh, change, um, there's a kernel of truth there. 8.5 is an extreme case. It was used for some of these analyses. But as you said. Uh, The report, when you look into 1,600-plus pages of it, um, gives a representative uh, range uh, from which you can pick. And, you know, 4.5 is the one that scientists usually tell me to pay attention to, and that's what I do. And at that, at that, in that kind of future, there will be uh, significant uh, effects, economic, uh, weather effects, extreme weather. Um, what scientists, I asked them, well, why do you use 8.5? It is, they often say, not very likely uh, that the world will do nothing. 8.5 re- represents doing absolutely nothing since 2010. And that's already obsolete because uh, the world is doing quite a bit right now with the Paris Agreement and they say well we like to have a range that shows what would happen if paris fell apart if the world decided not to do anything at all uh it's there as an outside boundary um and so they use it um uh, and you know as you mentioned uh the bush the uh, the trump administration is focusing on that um and there is a kernel of truth in that, but uh, the fact is that the report does actually give a, a range. And uh, when you look at the full range, it's it's all bad news. It's it, just some of it's worse.
10: Even in that middle range that you say is seen as the most likely, um, it's dire economically?
11: Uh, it's dire economically, although I think it's uh, important to point out this is something that we decided at NPR not to do, which is the new, what the New York Times wrote, was this, this number of 10% reduction in GDP by the end of the century. That is an 8.5 scenario, so uh, again, back in the weeds. That is a worst-case scenario. It uh, it actually does not occur in the text of the report. Um, it comes apparently from one graph that was in the report that comes from a paper that was published in Science Magazine last year that was a, a sort of a a, a a look at all the possible futures, uh, again, using all these scenarios. And most of them clustered around much a much less uh, economic effect than that, around three or four um, percent. One of the uh, simulations came up with 10 percent. That showed up on the graph. That showed up in the paper, uh, in a graph, but not in the text. The, the text of the economics report, report said, hundreds of billions. So it's not as if, I mean, you know, one can quibble over, is it 10%, 3%, 5%? It is serious economic damage. Um, but uh, I'm, at least for NPR, we're not using the 10% number, but it's certainly, the number we used was hundreds of billions of dollars of losses from GDP by uh, 2090, by 2100.
10: And even at that more uh, conservative reading of the report, I think it's striking that it's framed in terms of economics as much as it is because what I think we see from the president and from uh, climate policy uh, skeptics, let's say, whether or not they're skeptics of the science, they say, well, the question of the trade-off is how much do we want to um, reduce global warming in exchange for how much damage to the economy because it'll cost us more to do things that produce carbon and other greenhouse gases less, and so here comes this every four-year national climate assessment uh, mandated by Congress, and it frames a lot of it in economic terms. Um, that you know it would cost in crop damage, it would cost in lost labor, uh, it, it would cost in other, um, uh, it would cost in in damage to critical infrastructure that we would then need to pay. To repair, Um, and so I don't know if that's you know a political, strategic calculation as well as a pure economic one on the part of the National Climate Assessment. But what one thing that seems to me important here is that it it focuses the conversation not just on the overly simplistic equation that people use sometimes of climate versus the economy.
11: Well, yeah. And one of the things that they did, uh, uh, in the text, uh, uh, the authors of the economics part of the report was they took a look at what would happen with the most worst case scenario, uh, and the middle of the road scenario in terms of economic damage. And they calculated the difference. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a loss even with the intermediate scenario but it is so much less than it would be otherwise. And this is the calculation I talked to some of the authors. They said this is what we wanted people to really understand is that the choices that we make now, uh, there's going to be some damage and there's going to be a uh, uh, harm. We're already baked into a certain amount of climate change. But if you take the more aggressive course in reducing emissions, you're going to save a heck of a lot of money. Um, and furthermore, what what the scientists have been doing uh, over the years improving their models and informing them with more economic data plus the fact that we are seeing the uh, effects on weather and uh, which is the short term version of climate we're seeing more extreme events we're able much better to do, to perform something called attribution science, which is to say, okay, here's an event. It's a hurricane. Hurricanes have always happened. Can we attribute that event to climate change or at least its severity? And that's a science that's becoming much more mature. And as scientists are able to say, yes, we can pick half a dozen events around the world now and say, like Harvey, for example, that we can all calculate how much worse it was because of climate change, then you can start translating, translating that into dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. And so this gives um, uh, an, an economic edge to the science that it didn't used to have.
0: In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, DC, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the Clean Energy Company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestoflife.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice.
5: When you look at corporate behavior and the behavior of some of the powerful people in the system, it sure looks like the problem is greed. The problem is that there are these horrible people doing horrible things and running corporations and governments that are doing horrible things. And if we could only get rid of those people,
11: No Trump! No Trump!
5: the world would be so much better. But when we assign blame in that way, we are substituting a false problem that we kind of know how to solve for the real problem, which we don't know how to solve. The false problem that we do know how to solve is how to defeat a bad guy. The movies have taught us how to do that. You kill the bad guy. Or you lock up the bad guy. Or you destroy and humiliate and get him fired and then the problem solved. That picture gets complicated when you realize that the behaviors of the bad guys are created and to some extent dictated by the system that they're in. Not that there's no leeway, yes there are always moral choices in any situation, but In general, if you are the CEO of some corporation and you decide that you're going to stop using fossil fuels in your company, if you deviate too far in a way that harms the bottom line, then that institution will eject you, even if the board of directors privately agree with you. Maybe you're the owner of the company and you can do whatever you want. Then you have to worry about market share and... Your bottom line. The discipline of the market prevents anybody from deviating too far from what the market demands. And there's certainly steps that people can take in those positions to move toward the direction that we want to go in. But those steps require courage. People in those positions need a lot of support in order to do the right thing. That support can sometimes take the form of, hey, we're watching what you're doing, and you did this, and that caused this to happen. So it's not shutting up about the negative consequences of corporate behavior, but to move from that to, aren't you awful, will make people defensive. And it'll make you seem like an idiot because they know that they're not awful. They took care of their neighbor's dog when they were on vacation. They contributed money to this, that, and the other thing. They're nice. They don't think that they're awful. Almost nobody has an opinion of themselves that they're awful. So this is the situation that we're lodged in. It's partly economic. It's partly infrastructural. It's partly our habits that were imbued in us from growing up in this culture. Habits of competition. Habits of scarcity. Habits of judgment. Habits of struggle. All of these things make us into who we are. As we become aware of these influences, then we're able to overcome them. They no longer operate unconsciously. So if I see myself in judgment of somebody, or reactively seeing them as a competitor, or as a mark. How can I make money off of you? When I begin developing awareness of that, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm operating out of a habit, and I can choose differently. Sometimes even seeing an alternative is the information. And I mean information in the sense of something that comes in and forms you having a friend who quit his job and is traveling the country working on permaculture farms. Oh, yeah, I could be doing that. It's not like all of a sudden you became a better person. It's that you got new information. Therefore, if we want to change the system and change the behavior of people in the system, We can be providers of different information. Which doesn't necessarily mean intellectually articulated data points. It could be the kind of information that we call unconditional acceptance. Kindness. Courage. Or it could be seeing them as somebody just like me who wants to make a difference in the world. From that way of seeing, all kinds of things happen.
12: Hundreds of activists occupied House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi's office on Tuesday, demanding action on climate change. 51 were arrested. The protest was led by the environmental group, the Sunrise Movement, and the Political Action Committee, Justice Democrats, and they were joined by Representative elect Alexandria Ocasio Cortez from New York. The activists are demanding Pelosi and the House Democrats champion a Green New Deal and mandate that all Democrats elected to the House pledge not to take any fossil fuel money. Pelosi responded to the protests. She called them inspiring. Now joining us from DC to talk more about this is Varshini Prakash. Varshini is a co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, and she currently serves as their communications director. Thanks so much for coming on today.
13: Happy to be here.
12: So, okay, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon, uh, and this morning you saw dozens of your fellow protesters get arrested at Pelosi's offices. Um, You saw a representative-elect join your ranks again. She even stood on a table supporting y'all. How are you feeling right now?
13: Well, I feel excited. I feel energized. I also feel (laughs) exhausted. But um, a lot of the energy of this morning is really keeping me going. I mean, what it felt like to see somebody who will literally walk the halls of power joining us in that moment and calling for some of the same things that we're calling for, um, calling on Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership to step up on climate and show real climate leadership um, by backing a program like a Green New Deal to actually transform our economy and society at scale over the next 12 years to stop the climate crisis and mandate that politicians at Nancy Pelosi's level and who um, hold positions of power in Democratic leadership really need to take the no fossil fuel money pledge um, and reject contributions from oil and gas executives and lobbyists.
12: And the way that you're demanding Pelosi get to this uh, Green New Deal is to create a new committee, um, the Select Committee for Green New Deal, you're calling it. And in response to your protest, she said, quote, I have recommended to my House uh, co- Democratic colleagues that we reinstate the Select Committee to address the climate crisis. Um, I guess here she's referring to the committee that she created in 2007, um, mm-hmm. the Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. Sunrise responded that she's, quote, bringing a squirt gun to a wildfire. Talk about this response and what exactly uh, the Green New Deal that you're demanding would entail. Um, What would she have to do?
13: Yeah, well, if you look at the actual House committee that she's talking about, it really had no teeth. It had no ability to draft legislation. It was largely um, an outfit to just do messaging and communications about climate change. And frankly, the time to educate the public um, and increase awareness about the issue has Far gone. It's 2018. We are rapidly approaching a deadline that uh, a science mandated deadline in the next 12 years to decarbonize our economy. Um, and so, instead of of the committee that Nancy Pelosi is proposing, um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, Sunrise Movement, and Justice Democrats are uh, proposing that she create a committee. Um, a House Select Committee on a Green New Deal that would actually have the power to draft legislation um, and build some understanding, put forward big, bold, uh, popular solutions to the climate crisis so that when 2021 and beyond comes, um, we can actually put some of this legislation um, into practice.
12: Um, so talk more about the the pledge that you're asking uh, or that you're demanding, rather, uh, that all House Democrats sign. Um, again, this pledge is to not accept any fossil fuel donations, and some have already signed it. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and what kind of support you've gotten?
13: Sure. Um, I think something that's really cool is that all of the powerhouse young politicians who supported us uh, today and yesterday, Rashida Tlaib, um Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were actually some of the first signers of the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, which calls on politicians to reject the influence, the financial influence from oil and gas executives, lobbyists, and front groups. Um, We really identified fossil fuel money in our politics, um, like, corporate money in our politics as being a huge, huge influencer. Um, We've seen the Koch brothers spend $750 million on the 2016 election. They spent a record $450 million on the midterm elections, which is absolutely unprecedented. And so this influx of Dirty oil money has really corrupted our our democracy and our ability um, to make sound decisions about the climate crisis and put forth the solutions that we need. So it only seems to make sense and seems pretty it seems pretty common sense that somebody who would sit on a committee um, to pass big bold climate legislation um, wouldn't be bought out by the very companies um, that are uh, that only seem to care about their bottom line when it comes to the climate crisis
12: talk more about what those solutions are. Um, what is, what exactly is a green new deal? Um, and what kinds of solutions do you think would really address the climate crisis? What are your issues with some of the things that have been proposed in the house previously, for example?
13: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the thing about the green new deal is that it's just coming into fruition now, some of the language around it. And I think a lot of the things that have been put forward for what this select committee would actually do, um, uh, or the plan that the select committee would actually make in the draft legislation that they would create lays this out a little bit. So um, it includes things like uh, transitioning to a 100% renewable energy economy. Um, it includes things like ending fossil fuel subsidies for, uh, company uh, for corporations. It could look like politicians not taking um, money from the fossil fuel industry. Um, It includes the electrification of our grid and of vehicles and transportation. The list is endless. It could include um, massive investments, uh, the creation of tens of millions of good jobs for Americans and also investments um, for low-income communities and communities of color to actually weather the storm, so to speak, um, and, and enhance climate resiliency in those communities as well. And there are lots of examples of legislation like this um, in New York, in Chicago, um, uh, California just passed an 100% renewable energy uh, electricity bill. So there are examples of states doing this. And we think it's time that the federal uh, that the federal government actually step up as well.
12: But I think to all of that, I think Pelosi would say that she has stepped up. I mean, the creation of um, the Select Committee in 2007 that we discussed previously, um, she championed a carbon tax. Um, talk about why these uh, you don't think that these actions have been enough um, and what else you think that she needs to do to really be a climate champion.
13: Yeah, well, it's really about the urgency of the matter. Um- if you look at the recent IPCC report that just came out, the UN climate report, which I'm sure many of you saw the news about, science that tells us that we have 12 years for a rapid wartime-esque economic mobilization to stop the climate crisis. That is no joke. Um, and. Rumors uh, prior to the election were showing that Democratic leaders like Nancy Pelosi and others were actually uh, only talking about creating a plan around the climate crisis in 2021 or beyond. And we wanted to just draw a line to say that waiting till 2021 or beyond to even start talking about the solutions to this crisis uh, is delivering a death sentence on our generation and on many generations to come. We are terrified for our future. A lot of us aren't even old enough to vote yet. Um, we have seen the ways that wildfires have drought-driven wildfires have ravaged the California, Nancy Pelosi's home state. Forty-two people perished. Entire towns just non-existent because they've. Gone up in flames. Um, And so we're really feeling the potency and the, the urgency of this moment. And we just want to make clear to Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership that there's no time for talk and education. That time is over. The science is sound. We have everything we need. We just need you to be a leader and push for the big, bold solutions that are already popular with the vast majority of Americans.
12: So uh, so what's next now um today you occupied Nancy Pelosi's offices um what kinds of support are you getting and what are the next steps for Sunrise and Justice Democrats
13: Totally. Um, well, a less televised part of this whole thing was that there was actually um, a group of people, the folks who did not risk arrest, um, went around and, and uh, lobbied different progressive leaders in the House. So we talked to uh, Raul Grijalva, we talked to um, Can, we talked to Pramila J. Paul, um, we talked to Ro Khanna, and we asked them to uh, support us and um, issue statements of support if they thought that this select committee ought to be on a green new deal and have, um, more power than what Pelosi's putting out right now. Um, and so we are going to continue to push forward with that. We'll be, um, if you're interested in getting involved, um, I would go to sunrise movement.org and sign up. We're looking for more and more people to add their voices. Um, so we can call on these progressive leaders to support AOC's Ocasio's, um, new resolution that she is bringing forward. And um, a lot of the pressure will keep up in the next two to three weeks. And how
12: will you ensure that the select committee that you're um, pushing would have teeth? If you're saying that uh, the Energy Independence and Global Warming uh, Committee didn't have teeth, how would you ensure that this one really does?
13: Well, I think it's just about continuing to ensure that we're making our voices heard. I mean, obviously nothing is set in stone. Um, we will continue to push from the outside. Um, folks like AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, people like Ilhan Omar, Ayana Presley, who have backed a green new deal, who have put forward, um, claims that we need to get to hundred percent renewable by 2035, even not even some of the other benchmarks that other progressive leaders are talking about. We know that they're going to be, um, in the halls of power fighting with and for us. And we're going to be fighting from the outside to make sure that this committee is really following the principles um, and policies that we need them to and uh, that we need in order to, to act in accordance with what science and justice demand.
12: So the, the committee that you're proposing would be able to write legislation, actually, um, unlike the the one in 2007. Is right. That right, it would
13: be able to draft. Yes.
12: Okay. Well, as you continue um, on this fight, uh, we'd love to stay in touch with you and see uh, what comes next. Thanks so much for coming Absolutely. on today. Absolutely.
13: Thank you so much for having me. And again, SunriseMovement.org. Get involved, especially if you are a young person who is worried about the climate crisis and your future. We are with you. We feel you go to sunrisemovement.org and get involved.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with America Adapts, learning about the behind-the-scenes details of the IPCC. The broadcast discussed the IPCC report the day it came out. Science Friday spoke with Kelly Levin about some of the science behind the report. Counterspin pointed once again to media outlets that frame climate change as a personal challenge rather than a systemic, regulatory, and corporate problem. Democracy Now! discussed why we can't allow current economic realities to blind us to climate change solutions that lie in other economic paradigms. The Green News Report gave a special report on the U.S. National Climate Assessment. The Brian Lehrer Show also looked at the Trump administration's climate report. Sustainable Human took a look at who and what is to blame for the state of the environment. And finally, we just heard the Real News covering the story of activists and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez protesting in the Capitol demanding stronger action from Democrats on climate change. Members will be getting a bonus episode that's a little bit different than usual today. Uh, We've been having a discussion on recent bonus episodes about how society shapes us and the decisions we make throughout our lives. So today, I'm going to play a couple of clips that continue that theme by explaining how gas-guzzling vehicles, particularly trucks, which are seen as part of quintessential manliness in America are actually the result of clever advertising spurred into existence by a silly trade war started by chicken farmers. No kidding. So if you or anyone you know bought a pickup truck thinking it was your own free will driving that decision... I'm afraid you're mistaken. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hey there, this is Zev from Southern Illinois. I just finished listening to your episode about anti-Semitism and had some responses to some of the stuff that you talked about down at the end. Um, Thinking about what my community, I'm I'm very Jewish, thinks of and identifies as anti-Semitism takes up a lot of my brain. Um, We have this problem in my communities of not knowing the difference between nationalism and our own jewish identity and i think that that comes from this dirty deal that we made with white supremacy right to be the benefits of white privilege in for for european descended american jews we took on this ethno state and the way that that has affected us as a political community is just overwhelming to me and so when i see folks Looking outside of our community for anti-Semitism and, you know, having conversations like the one that, um, that you discussed about the nation of Islam, I just, it feels like defensiveness. It feels like if we can't look in and say, why does our Jewish identity need to be based on a political nationalism? And if we can't answer that question, that's the work that we need to do. That's the community that we need to turn to to start really having conversations about what does it mean to be anti-Semitic versus what does it mean to be anti-Zionist. And if we can't parse that, we are not going to be able to continue participating in the fight for liberation. Um, And we need that, right? Because like as the episode showed, we need to participate in the fight for liberation. We have only secondary benefits of white supremacy and the white supremacists are coming for us too. So the stakes are high and we need to keep up the fight and we need to do that by looking at ourselves. Thanks for everything you do. Have a good one.
9: Hey Jay, this is Nick uh, from California. I want someone to correct me gently when they hear this because I, I maybe I just don't get it and that's totally possible but I I really don't understand why Elizabeth Warren is, is getting heat over this uh, the statements I have seen from her never claimed that a DNA test could prove that she was part of any native tribe um, she was doing it to uh, because Donald Trump was seemingly calling her a liar for her family story where there was some native ancestry in her family and so Trump said, if you can prove that you have Native American blood, then, well, he didn't. He said it much more derogatorily than that. But so if you can prove that, then I'll give you a million dollars of my choice. Well, she can't prove, obviously, that she is of Native ancestry. I mean, it was with this test, I agree with that. And She can also prove that she's part of a tribe. But she could at least say to Donald Trump, look, there is some evidence that this family story has some legitimacy in in some way, like not that she 's necessarily a part of any tribe, but that she does have some native uh, part to to her and again she wasn't claiming it as far as I can tell to do anything more than to tell Donald Trump to go shut up i, I again, I want someone to correct me on this gently because i i've heard the parts of the podcast you're saying about it, and i i legitimately don't get it her statement. Right away, as far as I could tell, when she released the results, right away, not as a not as a I, as far as I can tell, not as a response. Or if it was, it was a very quick response. Was this does not prove I was part of any specific tribe. This is not saying I'm a member of any tribe or that I claim any specific native ancestry. Just that I have some native ancestry generically to show that my family story has some legitimacy. I I don't know. I mean. I I legitimately don't understand the Elizabeth Warren heat over this. And again, I really hope that someone can explain it to me in a a nice way because I'm generally, obviously, always an advocate for. I I feel awkward coming in and and not understanding someone, you know, not being able to really understand the perspective of, you know, the minority group. Um, I'm usually pretty good at that, but I don't get it in this case, and I hope someone can help me out. Thank you. So I'm going for a B-plus range answer here. I think I got it. So the idea that a white lady, obviously Caucasian, and assumes the privileges of being white, politicized being Native is the problem. Okay, That's a big problem in and of itself. Like That was something that she shouldn't have done. There were other ways that she could have dealt with this problem with Trump and the the thing that happened, such as just becoming more in tune and trying to help out and do more as far as rallies to help the serious problems indigenous people face. And on top of that, you, you cannot identify tribal heritage or tribal ancestry using these DNA tests. They might be able to tell you if you have some relationship to indigenous people. But again, that's so problematic because of the blood quantum problem and the things that she wasn't aware of. And they're criticizing her for politicizing these issues without looking into the history of things like blood quantum and other things. So even though she said this DNA test in no way can be used to identify me as part of a tribe. Even though she said that, it was just the context by which she politicized her ancestry and sort of invoked any uh, genetic, heritage, genetic association with, with that and validated this family story using that, given how problematic it is and how, how it's basically a, a person with privilege politicizing an issue and not in a way that actually helps indigenous people. I still don't think I nailed it. I still think it's only a B plus. I still think I, I could have definitely said it better because this is again an off the cuff while walking the dog type of voicemail. But I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm getting a B plus now. I think, I think I'm more in tune than when I, when I started. So, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to see. I want to try to get to that like A minus range. I'm never going to fully understand. Clearly, I'm not of this background. I'm not in. I, I you know, you can never fully understand these issues being a white man like myself. But I feel like it got a little bit closer. I feel like I I understand it a little bit more having listened to it fully and thought about it. So it helped. Thank you. Keep up the great work.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped get their clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick response to uh, Nick and his uh, question and answer. B++. probably about right. I, I don't think I'm actually qualified to uh, to be the one grading it, but I, I do think you're getting into the right area. Um, basically, my takeaway is the argument is if you're talking about DNA in relation to Native ancestry, then you're having the wrong conversation. Full stop. You can have that wrong conversation better, like Elizabeth Warren, or worse, like Trump, but you're still having the wrong conversation. So when you try to say, oh, no, but we're, I'm trying to be really sensitive about it and, and thoughtful about how we have this conversation, no, you're having the wrong conversation. No, no, I know, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, step out of my lane. I, I'm just trying to have this conversation in, in a sensitive and thoughtful way. Okay, right, but you're having the wrong conversation. So there is essentially no way to have this conversation in a way that is good or beneficial For anyone, so just stop. That that's that's my take in essence. So it doesn't mean there's not a conversation to have. There sure as hell is, but uh, DNA, Native ancestry, just leave it alone. If you have thoughts on this, especially if you have some insights that could help us. ignorant white folks uh, get a better grasp uh, of, uh, of the discussion. We would love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show.